Welcome to another edition of the Smart Podcast, SMRT, that is sports medicine and related topics. I'm Chris Raby, your host, along with Dr. Jason Young, an orthopedic surgeon here in St. Louis. You can find Doc at his website, jasonpyoungmd.com, and you can find him at Advanced Orthopedics at 8225 Clayton Road. A very special guest this week, our first guest on the Smart Podcast. Podcast. Now, we always love your feedback. I'll get to the episode in a moment. But if you have questions, if you have ideas, if you have thoughts for us, if you have certain topics that you want to hear about, please email us smrtpodcast at gmail.com, smrtpodcast at gmail.com. Like I said, a very special guest to kick things off, our first guest in studio, and we'll get right to it. All right, Chris Raby and Dr. Jason Young on the Smart Podcast. Doc, it is uh, the first episode that we're bringing a guest into the fold. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the podcast and what we're hoping to accomplish here before you introduce our special guest this week. One of the main things that I enjoy doing is is reaching out and, and teaching and, and spreading the word, if you will, especially on sports injury. That's sort of my passion in, in the orthopedic realm. But, uh, you know, so many times on the sidelines watching my kids, folks are asking me questions about various things. And so I felt that uh, there's no better way than to get on the airways and, and educate. And that's kind of my passion. And uh, so we wanted to extend it a little bit and uh, create sort of a bigger avenue to talk about some broader topics and so we are kicking this thing off so I figured the you know best first guess I could ever imagine would be my mentor my dad and so we're gonna put him on the hot seat and uh, and pepper him with some questions um, and uh, see where it goes well it's great to have both of you and dr. Paul Young thank you for coming in and, and agreeing to sit down with us. Jason and I chat all the time, and it's great to finally have our first guest. It, the honor is is all yours, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> incredible privilege for me to be here. You can imagine <laughs> watching your son grow up and become an incredible doctor and uh, see him take what you have uh, enjoyed your whole life to a different level is uh, quite a thrill. That's where I want to start with your family and to hear from both of you. And I know uh, how modest your son is, but, you know, I hear it from Aggie over at Bush Stadium uh, when you walk in to go to a Cardinals game. <laughs> uh, Dr. Young, how, how, did it all, how did it all start for you? Um, what was the initial interest? Was there a moment? Was there a spark? And then we'll kind of work our way down the path to this uh, – incredibly impressive and intelligent family that you now have. People often ask me that uh, when it was that I decided I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. It actually was in sixth grade, and uh, I remember vividly on the front of my sixth grade binder, I wrote neurosurgery. Um, I think probably... I don't think you want to know what I was writing in the front <laughs> of my binder, yeah. yeah. Probably that <laughs> well, was... Maybe the Bears uh, roster, right. yeah. That was born in a father who uh, was a teacher of brain anatomy and a grandfather who was a family doctor. So probably those two influenced me. But, yeah, I, I mean, I'm doing what I wanted to do since I was in grade school. And I was fortunate enough to be uh, put in a situation where I had the opportunity to 
observe a grandfather who practiced great medicine and a father who taught great medicine. So when you put those things together, uh, you're going to be a doctor and a teacher. And that's that's what I was lucky enough to become. In St. Louis. Correct. Passionate about the field, but passionate about the city of St. Louis and the community. Absolutely correct. Uh, born and raised. Uh, I've been away a few times for education, but always traveled back. And I don't think there's a better place to uh, practice medicine or certainly to grow up a family and live your life out. So when you decide that, that at such a young age, and we all get the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Some of us actually get to do it. And I remember telling people that I wanted to be the announcer for the Chicago Cubs in the same division now, different team, a rival. But Close. were there ever times uh, through your schooling, through the process, when, when times get tough, when you said, your parents said, anyone said, maybe you should think about something else? Was there ever a hesitation? Was there ever a doubt? And if so or if not, how did that help mold you and, and how did that help you become who you then became? So I went to St. Louis U High, and I remember vividly uh, as a sophomore, I had a priest who was teaching me second-year Latin, and uh, we had a little meeting. He was also my counselor, and I went in and I said, uh, Father Pieper, uh, you know, I, I think I want to be a neurosurgeon. He didn't and forget the name on that one. <laughs> he, and, and he started laughing. He, he actually he found it humorous. Uh, that I had that aspiration. And I think over the years, you know, people will look at you in a way that only encourages you. I always found that to be inspirational because the more people said yeah. I couldn't do it, yeah. I said to myself, of course I can do it and I will. So I, I never felt deterred. And I mean, I, I am such a fortunate person uh, because I live every day in an environment that I love what I do. And, you know, it's interacting with people, you know, it's gaining an appreciation that, you know, in this world, we're all in this together. And, you know, it's that feeling uh, for each person, I am so lucky to be able to be in your life and in some way, hopefully to help you. So it's a I, great I, place to live. I can imagine, though, for there's probably been hundreds of those exact stories with your high school counselor. I mean, you know, if I think back to what people told me along the way, I oh, mean, yeah. gosh, I mean, from, from your standardized test scores aren't good enough or, you know, you're just not the right mold. You're not the right fit. You're not this, you're not that. And so I think one of the most interesting things, um, you know, now having a youngster going through, through high school is that, you know, what, what is it, what does it take? Why uh, mm. do, you know, some folks who are faced with adversity, you know, persevere and others and others don't? And I think that there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on with these these mindsets, if you will. And, and I think you and I both have this sensation of the a growth mindset where no one is going to stop you. That, that mentality, that perseverance. And um, one of the coolest things that I've looked at recently and, and mostly to understand my own high school son was some of these TED Talks, which I think are yeah. amazing. I love these TED Talks. But Angela, Angela Duckworth had one where she talked about this and she looked at IQs and, and test scores and, 
and family income levels, and and she was trying to figure out, you know, who who succeeded and why. And at the you know when it was all said and done, all, you know, all these studies, it, it came down to grit. It came down to, and so, um, I mean, you passed it on to me, but I I'm not sure, you know, I don't know how you got it. I think for all of us, you have to develop. Uh, the sense that you're not afraid to fail. Yeah. If you're afraid to fail, then I think that limits you in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, you're not going to reach out. You're not going to put yourself in a situation where you're not going to succeed. And doesn't that limit your capabilities? Now, you know, I think one of the great fears as as the next generation grows up is are we putting kids in a position where they are afraid to fail because we don't let them fail. You know, every kid in the class has to get a trophy. Uh, You know, every kid has to make a team. And, you know, I think there's a sentiment, at least, that we all ought to have that uh, we all, as we grow up, have to learn what failure is, but we have to develop inside of us a sense that it's okay in that sense, to fail, because later on, then you're not afraid to fail. And I was going to ask you guys, I'm not a parent, but how do you pass that on to your kids? And I'm sure whatever you try to pass on, it's still heartbreaking to see your kids not get what they want. I remember, you know, being very, very young and not making a travel baseball team. And then, you know, as I went on, I figured out that my path was not to play competitive athletics at the highest level. I failed when I sent resumes and demo tapes to every radio station in every top 100 market in the country living at my parents' house for nine months until I got my first lucky break. But every step of the way, my parents were so, so, so supportive. So how do you guys as parents, how have you as parents passed that along? It's okay to fail while dealing with the disappointment yourselves that your kids are going through? I think uh, from my perspective as a parent, uh, as someone who has uh, been involved uh, with kids' education for my entire life, uh, that it's a sense that when you're growing up, and what's the age? I think it's early. I think it's three, four, five, six, that if you fail... Your parents may say, you know what, this didn't work out. But in your heart, you still know that they love you no matter what. Yeah. If you lose your parents' love when you fail, then I think you're going to be afraid to fail. So I think it's something that we develop early on uh, is a sense that, you know, I am not afraid to fail because even if I do fail, everybody, uh, the people most important to me are still going to love me. So it's okay. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's it. it it's, and that's, I, I think as a young parent, uh, it's one of the hardest things to wrap your head around, but uh, because so many things in our life, especially with the, you know, we'll get, we're probably going to talk a little bit more about sports because I love sports, but is that, you know, the, the, you, you got to win, you, you know, you, you, you need to be top in your class and, yeah. and all of these things. And so you start to develop, well, if, you know, if, if I didn't get a hundred on that test or I'm not in the top 10 in my class, then I'm never going to make it. I can't be a doctor. I can't do this. I can't do that. And that's a fixed mindset where, yeah, you know, that's going to end up 
you know, heading you in the wrong direction. Whereas, you know, once you can wrap your brain around about praising the effort is where I, where I find myself really trying to, to work on is, is just motivating. And it's that, you know, trying to develop that, that passion, that perseverance, that, that grit. And if the youngsters feel like, you know, if they don't get an A, they're, they're nothing, then, then they're eventually going to turn off from that. Is it, is it an observable trait? Is it's obviously grit, not something you inherit, but Jason, to hear your dad talk about the people from a very young age, tell him that he couldn't do something to fight through all of that. You growing up that had to have rubbed off on you, your siblings, I'm sure not just the support and the encouragement that you got from your parents and your family, but when you see the people around you displaying those kinds of traits and fighting for everything, I'm sure that as much as you've accomplished, you know, throughout your professional career, there have been people telling you that you couldn't do things. So to see that, Jason, it's not something that's inherently passed down, but how does that rub off on you and and how can that grit kind of um, th- that is surrounding you help you to become the person that you are when you're growing up and you're facing some of the same challenges. Yeah, it. I think that's, I'm just super fortunate to have, you know, been around a grandfather who's still teaching it uh, close to 92 years old and uh, still still jumps in his car and drives down to the med school to teach and, and then watching my dad do it. I mean, I there were so many things growing up that I may have not realized the magnitude at the time, but now that I've gotten older and I look back and I, I constantly say to myself, how did you do that? How did you do all of that? You know, um, between, you know, running a full-time neurosurgical practice and then, you know, Coriezu Academy says, look, we don't have a freshman basketball coach. Um, <laughs> we need a freshman basketball coach. Will you coach? You know, and he's like, yeah. I mean, I I, I run a practice now and I'm like, I, I, I can barely get to all my my kids events. Well, he had four kids plus that. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, you lead by example. And, and so those, that mindset was definitely entrenched in me. And, and however, I would say I had a, I definitely had a moment where you, when you're, especially trying to get into law school, become a doctor, whatever it may be, you've yeah. got your, you, you know, there are definitely numbers that you've got to hit and you've got to do this and you got to do that. Well, I always remember just kind of knowing what numbers I needed to get into med school. And once I got that number, it was like the weight was gone at that point. So I was always somewhat of a marginal test taker. I think I psyched myself out. Um, I could do the coursework and I, you know, because to me that was grit. That was effort. Yeah. And that was no problem. The test sort of would, would, you know, I, I, I was always kind of average. So finally a I little, got... A little of that fear of failure. Yeah. Maybe. So I, you know, so I finally got that test. I got into med yeah. school. And then you know what? The funny thing is, is once that happened, obviously I had multiple tests thereafter. I did great. You were in. I was in. I was done. Like those tests, now I was challenging myself. I was like, bring it on. You know, I'm going to learn something from this experience. So every every standardized tests that I took from once I got into med school, my test scores went up. And because the, the, the pressure was gone. At that point, it was all about growth because I knew I was going to be a doctor. 
and I was going to, you know, set my eyes on what I wanted to do. So it's just, there was definitely a, still a turning point, you know, where, where I did have to sort of let go of all that, you know, you get wrapped up in the numbers. And again, because of the encouragement and because of the excitement and the environment, I'm sure, and having a passion for what you wanted to do because of your father and your grandfather's passion for what they did. Once you got in, it was probably, I'm one step closer, like, let's go. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you know you're in, you know, and now it's just work. And then the tests after that were just kind of marks on your belt. Like, you've got to take those tests to get to the next level. But I started to embrace them as a challenge. Yeah. And and a learning curve. And, and I no longer... I didn't really worry about comparing myself to anybody else anymore. Um, you know, it's the old adage, like, you know, the kid in the kid that finishes last in your medical school class is, is, is a doctor. So what you're really <laughs> talking about is a great definition of performance. And you can apply performance to virtually anything in life. You know, we all, as we begin to get into something, we learn what performance means, and there's a certain critical point in performance where either you succeed or you don't. And, I mean, people can look back at Michael Jordan, you know, when, when he was still in college, and he makes the shot that wins it all. He figured out, hey, I can do this. And I think that's the same thing. Passing that test for you yeah. to get into med school was your, you know, three-pointer to win the game. And after that, performance became a lot easier. You figured out you could perform at an extremely high level without any great feel of failure. And it can become addictive too, right? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That feeling? I well, mean, I think, you know, that example of Michael Jordan too, I, I'm pretty sure he was actually cut at some point from his high school basketball team or something yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, there's unbelievable yeah. stories like that. And, um, I just, you know, again, I, I think it's one of the hardest things to wrap your brain around when you're going through it. But um, there's a lot of really cool stuff out there about how we need to change, how we encourage our kids. And it's not about, you know, good win tonight. It's more about, hey, good effort. I think if you can, if you can focus on that, you can change a kid's life. Well, isn't one of the, one of the problems now is uh, the expectation that kids are going to perform on a traveling team or a select team or a high-performance yeah. team. You have, yeah. you have sixth graders being nationally ranked now by some of these some of these businesses out there. Well, yeah, and a, and a lot of it is, like you said, it's the ESPNs and the 24-7 coverage, and there are websites and organizations that are multi-million multi dollars that rank kids. Look at the news the last couple days about, you know, AAU coaches getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for kids that are in high school to funnel them in, in certain places. But even take it a step low, 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 lower. You go into any community, whether it's St. Louis, Chicago, Nashville, Indianapolis, anywhere around here, and even if we're not talking the AAU basketball circuit, I mean, I remember, and again, going back, when I was growing up in my town, there was one travel baseball team and all the house league teams you could try out and they would take 20 kids to make the travel team. And you made it, then you'd play that summer. If you didn't make it, you'd try out the next summer. But you traveled around the neighborhood and played maybe 15, 20 games. I mean, it's gotten to the point now where, you know, as you were talking about, Dr. Young, 
there's not only 15 or 20 teams, but then there's also the pressure that you got to make this team. And, you know, we're, we're flying to California or we're doing this or we're doing that. And, and it's just, it's amazing how it's exploded and how, as it's exploded, the expectation and the pressure has exploded. And oftentimes I'm, I'm sure that it's pressure that parents are almost putting on themselves rather than pressure that kids are feeling when you talk about a certain age. Yeah, there's no question. I think the common parent now, if their kid isn't playing on one of those teams, it's like, well, what's wrong with me? Why, or, you know, their friends are saying, how come your kid's not playing? You know, it's an expectation that your kid will play on one of these teams. And, um, and you know, I think you can look at this from a, from a number of different aspects as being problematic. How many of these kids actually end up playing at the highest level, professional sports Whatever it be, you know, it's a small, small number. So you've channeled a kid at an early age to perform in a sports-related as really that's the most important thing in their life. Yeah. They need to dedicate all their time and effort to it. So if they don't make it, then, quote, they fall back on other professions like teaching or business or whatever it be. That's their fallback. It seems to me maybe we should be focused the other way around and— you know, kids should be encouraged to perform in other disciplines, too. Uh, so I think it's it's a little bit upside down in the sense of of the way we've got kids now channeled. And, and, and Jason, let's stick on this, and then we'll circle back. And I want to kind of, at the end, we'll rapid fire, pick your dad's brain a little bit. But something that you and I have talked a lot about is specialization. And... When I talk with pro athletes, when I go on trips with the Cardinals and we do Q&As, I make sure when there are families in the crowd, I always ask the players, I never tell them what I'm going to ask, but I say, what is the biggest piece of advice you'd give to parents and kids? The first thing, Jason, that they say is play everything, try everything, do everything. When you hear, hear the word specialization, I just said it, you kind of cringed a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there there is an abundance of well-done literature out there now, especially in the orthopedic realm, is the just the importance of being a well-rounded athlete. If you start early specialization and you're playing year-round, the, the rates of injury increase dramatically. And if you follow those kids, most of them have a really high burnout rate. In fact, like some of the literature now is talking about the the amount of depression seen in those in those youngsters because they become fixated on this, um, you know, one sport and and yes, I mean the the, the statistics are uh, averages about two percent of of high school athletes will play in college, and so the the next step is is and there are a lot of colleges. Yeah, and so I would encourage everyone. There's actually a recent really good Time Magazine article that I read on an airplane talking about what happened to my kids rec league. You know, I mean, this is a $15 billion industry now. And, you know, I think they had in there, let's see, I have it right in front of me. So lacrosse families are, are spending nearly $8,000 a year for their kids age eight to 18 to play lacrosse. It's $1,500 a year for, for soccer. I mean, bottom line is this, you know, enjoy this. There's so many unbelievably amazing things to learn from sports, teamwork and perseverance and grit and tenacity and all those unbelievably good things. However, being well-rounded is, that's what we all strive for, right? So if you're really that good at a sport, 
hey, the cream always rises to the top. People are going to find you. And so, you know, not only do you sort of keep your sanity about you, but you're a better overall athlete if you play basketball, if you play soccer, if, um, and, and like Chris said, I mean, if you, you talk to the professional athletes, and I've been fortunate enough to be around a lot of professional athletes too, and they will, to your point, they will all say, do it all. Um, it, because if you focus too early, your, your statistics go well. It's down. very similar to uh, you know how we recommend students prepare themselves for a profession, medicine, uh, healthcare profession, and the advice in high school and college is take everything, be yeah. well-rounded, take courses in everything you can think. Don't just stick to biology or you know the sciences. Learn everything because in the end, you will become better at what you do because you're well-rounded, and it, the application is here. I'm, as you talk about this, I think recently uh, now the academy teams prohibit their players in soccer from playing on the high school teams. I mean, ridiculous. It, it doesn't make any sense to uh, take kids away from their friends, the social environment of high school, and say, well, you can't play. You can only play on this academy team. So it really has gotten completely out of control. The question is, how do we reverse it? You know, how do we get more and more kids to drop out of these, you know, kinds of situations? But you're not convincing the kids. You're convincing the parents, parents right? Yeah. I mean, and, and these, I mean, now you're, you're starting to get to the point where um, lower income families can't even afford to get their kid in a rec league. Um, you're starting to get people priced out of a sport, which is, which is crazy. I mean, you know, um, if you start limiting access, I mean, it's just really unfortunate, but yeah, I, I, it seems to be a snowball rolling downhill. I'm not sure I have a, a solution. Answer to how to reverse it. Is that the biggest mistake that, that parents are making thinking that if they start their son or their daughter on a singular focus at a younger age, it will lead to more success. Is that the biggest mistake? Are there other mistakes or misconceptions that you guys see both as professionals but also as a parent, as a parent and a grandparent? Well, I think it's the sentiment uh, as each generation goes on to try and do more and more for your child. You don't want your child in any way to be left out. And if there's a sense inside either created by the competition or created by other parents that somehow they're being left out, you know, I think that might be the number one motivation. I would hope that most parents don't think their kid's going to become a professional athlete. Right. You know, but it's the sentiment that, you know, well, I'm not giving them everything they need to succeed, therefore we need to do this. And I think that's the thinking process that maybe needs to be changed, you know, let your kid be a kid and play all of the sports and you're giving them every opportunity in that setting. And actually in this setting, you may be limiting their opportunities. Yeah. It's, it's the growth mindset, right? Uh, let them enjoy the process and, and uh, mix up the sports. Like even if they're not as good at basketball, but you know, you have to teach the merits of, you know, doing a different activity. It, it helps, you know, certain sports are, are hard on particular joints. And so it's nice to to have a little bit of a transition. And so, because I can tell you, I mean, my office with the repetitive overuse injuries, 
I mean, the rates at which these kids are playing these sports is just, it's, it's getting astronomical. And, and uh, sometimes the parents, and myself included, you don't even, you stop and think, you're like, wow, okay, yeah, we just played six straight months and we were going to, you know, three games a week with practices every night. And all of a sudden you, you, you got to stop and think about it. Like, okay, yeah, I, you know, time for a break. Another thing that might be a part of this is, you know, kids now when they're at home or spending a lot of time, you know, on the computer, on the phone, on the iPad, in the old days, I mean, what were we doing? We were outside shooting hoops or, you know, throwing the ball around or doing something. And I think, you know, the focus now, too, of parents might be less. I mean, I, I learned to play baseball because my dad threw me balls. I learned to shoot hoops because my dad shot hips with me. You know, how many parents are doing that now? You know, and maybe part of it, part of this, I need to be sure that I'm giving everything to my kid is, well, I'm not, I don't have as much time to spend with them outside. Therefore, let me throw some money at this team, and I'm sure that they're getting that stimulus they need to get better. So there are lots of factors that come into play in terms of what's going on. Jason, growing up and the son of a world-renowned neurosurgeon, what was it like grow up and, and play sports and anything off limits for you? <laughs> well, that's a good one. Um, you know, I, I, I fell in love I played everything. Um, the only thing that was essentially off limits was football. And so I, you know, I didn't really push that one that hard. I fell in love with, with basketball and, and, and soccer and baseball and then transitioned into just basketball at the high school level just because it, it's just what I love doing. But uh, I played everything throughout except for football. So I'll, I'll let the man himself tell, tell folks why he chose that. Well, uh, you know, it's it's been clear to us in in the medical profession, especially those of us that deal with with brain trauma, that uh, that football is an incredibly dangerous sport. And um, you know, the number of youngsters that I've seen in my life who have had significant concussions is uh, astounding. Uh, we saw many years ago, you know, kids at the high school level who. Uh, clearly were affected by repeated concussions. Uh, now we know with the data that's come out is, is that it's it's almost impossible to play even at the high school level uh, without having uh, in practice and in games repeated, repeated concussions. Many times it's not even recognized as a concussion. You know, somebody uh, hits you hard and it throws your head back you know, you may not feel anything, but your brain has been concussed. It's only the most severe concussions that actually produce symptoms. So and it's astounding to me how over the years parents have allowed their children to be put in an environment where they could be permanently injured. The data now is, is absolutely astounding in how high a rate that this happens. Uh, you know, with all the things that's going on in, in the professional football, um, uh, it, it still boggles my mind how you can let your child go out there and participate in a sport. In, in some ways, I look at it in, in a, a semi-humorous, although I think with the severity of the issue, it's not really humorous. But it's almost like we're in, this, in the old Roman era of gladiators. You know, football players are gladiators out there. The difference is, you know, they may not be bleeding on the field, but they're damaging each other's brains on the field. 
And it's a similar thing. You know, it's hard for me to, when I see somebody get pounded, to stand up and cheer because this individual is going to have a permanent effect of that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean... Yeah, I, I mean, the, the awareness is, is obviously the first step. I mean, we're finally starting to get some scientific data produced. We're starting to track these things. But, you know, the ultimate, the ultimate thing, though, is that now that we we started looking at all sports and all exposures. I mean, there was a recent paper that, that suggests that the female soccer incidence of concussions mm. may be higher than football. So, I, you know, so what do you do, you know, at this point? And, and you know, I, the way I've been looking at it and, and, there's multiple arguments about headbands and helmets and things in soccer, but you know, I can remember we've, we've always been fairly avid skiers and I can remember for years and years and years, you went skiing, you put a stocking hat on and your goggles and you went skiing. Well, you go to the slopes now and look around you. I mean, I would tell you, I, I think 90% of people are wearing helmets. Absolutely. So who started that trend? And you know, the, the, the folks that say the headbands in soccer aren't going to prevent concussions or people are going to play more violently, I'm not so sure that that's a reasonable argument. I, I hope that we can, for some of these other sports, start a trend where we can protect those, those players. Well, sure. You know, I mean, in, in every discipline, as we've gone through the last 20, 25 years, there's been an attempt to improve the equipment, mainly to try and cut down on concussions. So... You know, in baseball, the catchers and umpires behind the plate have all incredibly improved their equipment to try and, but it's still, I mean, Molina's been out for a week with, you know, two concussions. So you cannot, I think, completely prevent it, but you can certainly diminish it. For example, you mentioned soccer. So why can't we, first of all, provide, you know, some sort of protection? That's simple. It's there. You put a band on and, uh, you know, it may not look fancy, but it's it's protective. And second, why can't we teach soccer players not to lead with her head? Yep. You know, there's a corner and what are the what are the kids doing? They're all leading with their yeah, head. I mean, well, techniques two heads are going to hit. Heads yeah. are going to hit goalposts. I mean, you know, so I think there are ways to make sports uh, better from equipment, but also – from technique, yeah. uh, you know, we just need to be better at, at at worrying about concussion because it is such a serious problem. And that's got to start with coaching and teaching. And it's unfortunate that where it is probably the worst is at the very youth football level where you have maybe some very good coaches, but a lot of coaches who are either A, doing it, for the wrong reason, B, have no idea what they're doing because they watch the NFL on Sunday or college football on Saturday, or C, a combination of both. And these are the youngest and most susceptible playing the most violent sport. Correct. And, you know, and there's still a sentiment out there. If, if you pay close attention to some of these uh, sporting events, you'll see somebody that clearly has been concussed. And you would think and in this day and age, they come oh, yeah. off Last the field. Last night in the Bears game, he went right back out. Yep. Yeah. Josh Bellamy, he you know, didn't know where he was. It, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. And so the sentiment is, you know, first of all, it's disregard for that person. You know, it's saying, well, you know, tough it up. Concussion isn't that, isn't that big a deal, you know. And, and second, it's what's most important. 
winning the game. And oftentimes they get praised for the toughness. Yeah. Praised you know? for the toughness. Well, that's I think that's part of the reason, you know, it's hard to pick out when you do formal studies. But, you know, I think there's a reason why young female athletes are a little bit more inclined to come to the sideline and say, I'm not feeling very good. Whereas your young male football player, it's a tough, violent sport. And so get back out there, son. You're doing just fine. Um, I get it. You're not going to change some of those elements, but the preseason testing, um, you know, the the impact testing is what we're seeing most commonly used because it's, it's digital, it's quick, and, and it gives you a point of reference of your normal cognitive function. But it's trying to create the awareness, trying to prevent recurrent concussions because that's where you start to really get into yeah. some problems. And so you're not going to take concussions out of sport, but we all got to be smart. And, and you know, I'll, I'll, I would ask you, I mean, we're starting to see after the movie concussion and we're starting to see Academy of Pediatrics coming out and talking about the potential of, you know, should you, where do you stand on the, you know, age six to 14 year olds playing football. Like, should that be an absolute no? Like, what do you think? Yeah. I I mean, I think if you're talking about football in its current context, uh, full tackle football, uh, I don't think any kid should play it. I think it's too dangerous. I think these kids clearly are having concussions and you know, if it's my child, my grandchild, I don't want them out there. That the, the danger is too high. Now, can you change the sport somehow to make it safer? Can you do some things in and not destroy the game, but improve it from the standpoint that concussions are much less frequent? I don't know. I think that's something that, you know, the experts need to look at. Uh, but one thing, Jay, you said that, that uh, I think we absolutely need to make the concern about the seriousness of concussion first and foremost. And there should never be a coach in any sport at any time who disregards the severity of yeah. it. You know, any kid, any professional athlete, any college, it, it doesn't matter. You know, if you observe something happen that you think that ch- uh, person had a concussion, they come out of the game. Not I mean, well, yeah, not, and not only that, they need to come off the sideline, and they actually need to go. They should. They should go home. I mean, they should be monitored. They should go home. They no should question. have you know brain rest. I mean, that's one of the hardest things. Is sometimes things are not totally witnessed, um, and then you know, concussion symptoms are. I mean, there's probably not a day I don't go home and have one of my three kids complain of some sort of concussion <laughs> symptom, right? Nausea, lethargy. Uh, you know, and so a lot of the things that kids complain about are same things that they complain about when they ate hard. a bologna sandwich. Sure. So awareness is so key. And I think the, the good thing, Chris, and the reason that we you know love getting on the air is that there are now unbelievably solid resources for people. And so I would tell you, uh, I, I recently uh, looked up the CDC has had an initiative called Heads Up. You can go to CDC's website, Heads Up. They have an app on the phone. They have it for coaches. They have it for parents. They have it for medical professionals. And so, um, you know, I just had an athlete come into me with, uh, you know, as a referral from a, uh, from a primary care with, a, you know, diagnosis of a mild concussion. And I sort of had this cringe moment where I'm like, you know, there's really no such thing as a mild concussion. You know, you're, it's a traumatic brain injury. 
And so awareness at all levels and the resources are there. The other one that I think is good and, and I'm somewhat biased because it's done by orthopedic surgeons is called Stop Sports Injuries. Um, if you Google that, there is innumerable resources, little pamphlets, you know, quick bullet points like what should I watch in my kid who's diagnosed with a concussion? What should I do? You know, do I need to wake him up, you know, every 10 minutes throughout, throughout the night and stuff like that? So I would encourage people to, to check out the resources that are out there and, and, uh, and educate themselves. So 20 or 25 years ago, the airline in industry instituted a timeout so that before any commercial aircraft can take off, it's not the pilot's decision anymore to take off. The pilot has to check with the co-pilot and that navigator, and all three of them have to say, everything's okay, let's go. Uh, medicine adopted this about 10 years ago. So before JRI can do a surgery or any surgeon in the U.S. now, it's a timeout. And the scrub nurse and the anesthesia person and whoever is participating all have to agree that we're doing the right procedure in the right spot and everything's set to go. Why can't we do that in professional or any type of sports so that you empower the people on the field? Now tell me, when you've got 20 people on a field in soccer or football over, one of those person hasn't recognized that perhaps this patient or this player suffered a concussion. Yeah. Yep. So empower them so that any player on the field can stop the game. Timeout, concussion, and the, and the person who witnessed this um, says, this guy needs to come off. This girl needs to come off. I think we're getting closer in the NHL, the NFL, college football. We have the independent spotter who's up in the skybox who has no affiliation. I don't know if a teammate, I'd be scared as hell if I'm standing at third base to say, I think Yadier Molina has a concussion. I don't know if I, but we're getting closer. That's coming. That yeah. We have the independent spotter who's not affiliated. And just like a replay, he buzzes down, stops play. And then in the case of the NFL, Major League Baseball, and the NHL, I don't know about the NBA because it probably never really happens. You have to go through protocol. And for instance, Yadier Molina went through protocol. Right. It's not I'm sure he wanted he said that night he wanted to be back in. Can't do it. Failed 48 hours before you can even go through the protocol again. NHL, same thing. David Perron here with the Blues missed. Almost a full season a couple of years yeah, ago. So I mean, and these I, are, I, I think we're getting closer. The question is, do we have the resources to do that at not just the major the collegiate level, but every sport and in high school and maybe in a perfect world someday, it's professional organizations kicking dollars in. Maybe it's the NCAA taking some of their <laughs> asinine television revenue and saying we're we don't care if it's soccer, lacrosse, volleyball. We're paying for an independent spotter at every single game and someone on site who's not affiliated with either team who can go through the procedure and the protocol. But unfortunately, I, that costs a lot of money well, and it might be a the, ways away. But I think we're a lot better than we were even like two years ago. Totally agree. I mean, I but it's think, at the pro know, level. I, I was on the sidelines of the NFL games and, and you know, we had our protocols and we, we had our, you know, many people may not understand. I mean, there's usually one or two orthopedic surgeons on the sidelines, multiple trainers, massage therapists. There's, you know, we have general medicine doctors on the sidelines. There's a neurosurgeon typically in the stands, um, on essentially on call. Um, neuropsychology uh, folks involved with the testing. I mean, the levels go on and on. And you're still seeing people on the on the field that you're like, you know, 
as a casual fan, like that that guy isn't looking so well, good. Well, Yachty took the first one off the mask and he stayed in. Yeah. So, but th- and that's the thing is that now you 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 take that down to the Pee Wee League. Yeah. I mean, th- there's no one, there's no one there, right? And so, it, at least at high school, many high schools now are doing the impact testing. Many high schools now have permanent trainers at most games. And so the question is, how do you, you know, and that's that's what worries me about the 6 to 14-year-old age group at these games. I mean, again, these kids are not going to come out and say, I have a concussion. They don't understand what a concussion is. And so they're so going to, you know. they're again, education. So why can't you take the teams before the season starts and give them a presentation on concussion, what the symptoms are, what the seriousness is, that you have the power to make it known to the coaching staff or the medical staff or somebody that you think this person may have had a concussion? I mean, why can't, in that scenario, let's take a football game of 10-year-olds, okay? Why can't one of the players say, hey, I think that player had a concussion. He comes off the field for an evaluation. I mean, it seems to me the people who are going to be able to recognize, now, you, you know, you talk about the spotter, well, I mean, the serious concussions they're going to see, but the other ones that may not be as serious, that are that are clear to the other players on the field, I mean, you say, time out, come off the field, be assessed, go back on the field if they don't feel you had it. Or, I, I, I don't know, I just think we have, to, we have to find a way, because of the seriousness of this condition, to do a better job of spotting them. And I think if, if players are aware of it, don't you think that's going to change the game itself inherently? Yeah. If I'm aware how serious this condition is, I'm much less likely to come in with my head. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think education is the key. Absolutely. I think it's just hard to uh, break down some of those barriers because, you know, some of the organizations, um, you know, Dear friend of mine is uh, Taylor Twelman, and he retired due to concussions in the MLS. And several years ago, we tried to get a little symposium going, and, and actually reached out to some of the private soccer clubs in St. Louis. And at the time, I think it's changed, but at the time, this was several years ago, they didn't really, they weren't too fun on us coming in there and talking about concussions. Yeah. I think the fact though that we are having the dialogue. It's good. Um, From top to bottom, and it's starting at the highest, highest, highest levels where you have NFL players literally retiring in the peak of their career. Right. It's got to start somewhere. And maybe it's unfortunate that it has to start there, but there's certainly a lot more conversation about this than there has ever been before, and I can't imagine that it's not going to continue to move in that direction. I agree. Well, gentlemen, we've... uh, We've been talking for so long that we may have to uh, postpone part two, and you may get suckered back dual in, segment. Dr. Yeah. Young, to, uh, to join us again. But I'm privileged to be here. Well, it's been a great conversation, and uh, Jason, I know that this is something that you're so passionate as well, not just the topics, but actually discussing them and um, providing people a little bit of insight and trying to answer questions. So um, I'm excited about having some more conversations. Folks can always go to your website, jasonpyoungmd.com. And again, I know you get asked these questions so often. And uh, again, you're just so passionate about trying to get information out there. Like we just said, it's, it's all about a discussion, right? Absolutely. I think the, the, you know, the whole point of this is to encourage the dialogue. And so we, you know, anybody that has any questions, comments, uh, concerns about 
anything that we're talking about, we just uh, ask that you reach out to us and, uh, and uh, we're always happy to, you know, on the air the next time, answer some of those questions for you. Yeah, please email us, smrtpodcast at gmail.com, smrtpodcast at gmail.com. Gentlemen, thank you again, Dr. Paul Young, Dr. Jason Young, and you can go to Jason's website, jasonpyoungmd.com. That's it for this week's edition of the Smart Podcast. We'll look for your emails and look forward to talking to you with another great guest next week. For Drs. Young and Young, I'm Chris Raby. Yeah.